Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey guys, welcome back to the Whole Heart Living Podcast. Today's episode, it's Christina here today, guys, and I'm super excited to have Allegra Castens on from Obsessively Ever After to talk about the connection between OCD and eating disorders. And we're going to dive into some of the biggest myths and misunderstandings about OCD. It's not just the cutesy, I like my organized pantry type of vibe, but really getting into the heart of what OCD is and the relationship between OCD and eating disorders like orthorexia, binge eating, arfrid, and more. We're also going to discuss the relationship between body dysmorphic disorder and OCD and how body dysmorphia and body image issues are very, very different and how it's not just this insecurity driven thing um, and how OCD can play such a big role. There is a trigger warning today, just a heads up, that there is talk of violent and intrusive thoughts in connection with OCD. Our guest today is Allegra Castens, and she is a licensed marriage and family therapist and she specializes in the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety disorders, body focused repetitive behaviors, body dysmorphic disorder, and eating disorders. She Her clinical work focuses on a cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure and response prevention, acceptance and commitment therapy, and mindfulness skills training for adults, adolescents, and children. One thing before we get started today, a huge thank you to all of our current Patreons for your support. We recently launched a Patreon for our show, which is a member-exclusive platform where you can pledge a small amount to help support our podcast. This helps us grow and cover the baseline costs of running the podcast, and you can gain access to every episode of the show, monthly bonus episodes, after the episode deep dives with guests, community episode discussions, listener questions, and bonus content shared only with our patrons. Check out more at patreon.com slash wholehearted eating. Link will be in the show notes too. So yeah, let's start off with you just kind of introducing yourself. Um, I'm so excited to have you on Allegra. You're from Obsessively Ever After on Instagram. If you aren't following please check it out for incredible content. I guess to start off, one of the things that I'd like for you to help people navigate is the, and I'm sure this could be its own podcast episode, but if you could try to like winnow it down a little bit, but I'd love for you to kind of squash some of the myths around what people believe to be OCD um, and what it's not, um, so that the people who are listening can understand the context in which we're talking about OCD. 
That is a really great question. So the first thing that I always like to say about OCD is that it's an ego dystonic disorder. And so what that means, it's obviously a psychological term, but it means that the obsessions and the compulsions are distressing to the person experiencing them. They are opposite to their values and their beliefs and their self-concept. And it's not anything that they enjoy. So the number one myth that we hear about OCD, I would say is like, I'm so OCD about organizing my pantry. I love it. I want all of my cereal in the corner and I want all of my peanut butter or whatever on the other rack. And it's it's really advertised and people talk about it as this like love for organization and cleanliness when that is not what it is. And I don't even necessarily know how that came to be. I think a lot of people get OCD and obsessive compulsive personality disorder confused. But OCD is a very egodystonic disorder and obsessions can be related to contamination. So you will find that some people with OCD are washing their hands compulsively until their skin is cracked and bleeding. You might find that they have just right obsessions in which they have to place something down in the right spot until some internal sense of rightness is achieved. But that's not enjoyable to the person experiencing it. It's not just let me go organize my pantry. That is not at all what OCD is about. And OCD also spans a variety of obsessional themes. So contamination obsessions are definitely one way that OCD can present, but there are a lot of other obsessional fears that don't get talked about enough, but are just as um, prominent for people who struggle with OCD, like an obsession, which is essentially an unwanted thought, image, urge that pops in repetitively can be about someone's relationship. It can be about something sexual, like unwanted sexually intrusive thoughts. Like what if I'm a pedophile? What if I'm attracted to my brother? What if I am not bi and I've been lying to everyone my whole life? What if I'm a murderer is a common one. So it often doesn't have anything to do with fears about contamination. And a lot of people don't recognize that and don't even know that they're struggling with OCD because it doesn't look the way that we've seen on television, either with the compulsive sanitizing or with the total myth that Khloe Kardashian just loves to organize her pantry. <laughs> she likes her Oreos and a certain perfect. Literally. Color. I'm like, if that was my OCD, like we, we would be good. We'd be gold. <laughs> I'd be cool with that. I right. also would love to have a team of people organizing my Oreos. So beautiful right. like that too, right? <laughs> so I could just go in and pick one up whenever I wanted. Um, yeah. I think also too, I could imagine as well is that it's a real disservice to people who have OC- true OCD, that there is this major misunderstanding about what it is because it could keep you from going and talking about it and getting help like admitting that maybe you have a fear that maybe you're a murderer could make you keep from going to therapy to talk about it to get the diagnosis and to get the support and so to think that it's something that you should be in some ways kind of where is a badge of honor can feel really terrible for someone who's living it and not knowing how to one identify how they're feeling or even understand that it's something that that they're struggling with that they could get support for. Well, totally. And myths about OCD keep a lot of people stuck. I mean, the average that it takes for someone with OCD to access proper treatment and a diagnosis is 10 to 15 years. 
And it's really painful for like, if we're talking about harm OCD, which is just a nickname for someone who experiences violent intrusive thoughts. I mean, they spend 10 to 15 years on average with these constant pop-ins. What if you want to kill your neighbor? What if you stab your dog? What if you X, Y, and Z? And then the constant compulsions of, I'm going to hide all of my knives in the car to make sure I don't absolutely, you know, snap one day. I'm going to give my dog away because I'm so afraid that I'm having thoughts about my dog. Like these really painful compulsions that are ultimately done to alleviate anxiety and to prevent something bad from happening. The person with OCD doesn't want to be experiencing these obsessions that they just can't stop from popping into their mind. And they also don't want to be experiencing the compulsions. They don't want to be carrying those things out, but they feel the urge to because of the obsessions. Yeah, absolutely. Man, so we are a a nutrition-based podcast, right? So how does this then show up with food? Because interestingly, I do. Because I see this a lot with my own personal clients. A lot of my eating disorder clients, I've I've wondered too. Like, are we dealing with something OCD related? And it's really hard to find an OCD practitioner. Yes. On top of it, so even right. even therapists that I work with who are eating disorder informed are like, oh, I don't work with OCD. I'm like, but who's gonna help? Like, <laughs> who's gonna help? Right. No, and I love. There are some, I'll say like, so I am a licensed therapist who treats both. I specialize in the treatment of OCD and eating disorders, but also I've lived experience with both and they did feel very similar OCD and my anorexia felt super, super similar, but there are obviously differences. And I think the number one thing to weed out is the number one is like the content of the obsession and why the person is performing the compulsion. So someone with OCD might restrict food and that could look like an eating disorder. Well, this client is coming in and they're saying they don't eat bread. They don't eat bananas. They don't eat, I mean, sugar whatever it might be, but it's asking why the person is doing that. So I've had clients in the past with religious scrupulosity obsessions and because OCD is so irrational, their brain essentially is telling them carbs are contaminated by the devil. If you eat carbs, you're going to go to hell. And so they start restricting food compulsively, not because they're afraid of carbs, not because they have body image disturbances, but it's purely related to the religious scrupulosity, or it could be related to the contamination obsessions. Like food feels contaminated, not contaminated in the sense of like orthorexia. That is a little bit, definitely more like OCD, but it could be like, there's something gross in the food. Okay. And it's so important to figure out like, is the person doing this behavior? Are they restricting? Are they purging? Whatever it might be because of body image disturbances and a fear of food, or is it because of an OCD obsession? Well, couldn't the OCD obsession become a bodily obsession too? It definitely could for sure. Like, but there are definitely, if it were more so about, there, I mean, it's so hard because there are gray areas here, you know, and especially <laughs> with body dysmorphic disorder too. There's, there's gray areas with that. That's body dysmorphia is an OCD spectrum disorder, but it's also, there's a gray area between, you know, that and eating disorders. Typically, if the obsession is primarily about somebody's body image, if it is about, let's say an intense fear of gaining weight, so like that would definitely be 
more so eating disorder because eating disorders do have obsessions and compulsions as well. So if there's an obsession about, you know, losing weight, a fear of food, I would look at that more so as an eating disorder. Whereas if the person is coming to me saying, I literally love my body, I don't care. I want to be eating carbs, but I'm getting these really irrational intrusive thoughts telling me that, you know, bananas are contaminated by the devil that would be OCD. And it is important. Like they can show up similarly and you can have both, but it's important to figure out which is which because they are treated similarly, but also differently. So I guess part of it too, you could see coming up as far as like, um, sometimes with bulimia, I could see also could really intersect here too. Being, I've seen you post on your content about a fear of vomiting. And I've had clients come to me before, like, I can't eat that food because I'm scared I'm going to get sick. And sometimes those, those clients can end up being diagnosed with um, avoidant restrictive eating disorder, but maybe it's actually on the spectrum of OCD. So I'd love for you to talk about these, this feeling of like, fear of vomiting and fear of eating and swallowing. Like I've seen that come up in eating disorders. And I'm curious if that shows up in OCD as well. Really great question. So emetophobia is something that a lot of, I wouldn't say, I mean, it's definitely comorbid with OCD, but it's essentially the fear of vomiting. And it looks very similar to OCD and that the obsession is kind of a fear of vomiting. And then we see compulsions like I can't eat that food because I'm afraid I'm going to throw up. I'm going to research every single restaurant that I go to because I want to make sure that nobody has gotten food poisoning there. If someone's sick, I'm not going to hang out with them because I don't want to get sick and throw up myself. So it's more of a phobia. But like you said, ARFID, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, someone can also have a fear of vomiting. Like it can be about you know, a concern that there is going to be an aversive consequence related to eating. So that can look similar to emetophobia. Interesting. And so when someone is going down this road, I mean, it seems so nuanced and, and overlapping that it could be really difficult. You'd be going, you could be going down the road of eating sort of treatment for your entire life. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, (laughs) wait a minute, this isn't, this is not quacking like that duck anymore. This is actually something else. Yeah. Like, you know, if, if someone doesn't understand that someone with OCD could compulsively restrict food and it literally has nothing to do with body image, it's not a fear of certain foods leading to weight gain. Like they might be missing OCD and they might be missing the kind of treatment that is necessary to treat it. And it is so nuanced. And I always say to people, you have to find a specialist who gets both so that we're treating both accordingly. Yeah. So when you're, um, you mentioned something earlier that I'd like to kind of bounce back to when you mentioned body image dysmorphia, um, and there being that actually being a spectrum of OCD. Can you explain that a little bit more? That's a really great question. So body dysmorphic disorder is essentially like there are obsessions and there are compulsions and it is a person experiences intense fear and anxiety about a perceived flaw or defect related to their appearance that is usually non-existent or if it is existent, it's very, very minor, but it feels 
you know, gigantic to the person experiencing it. And we see a lot of compulsions related to camouflaging. So heavy makeup use to cover the perceived flaw, not allowing people to take pictures of them, staring into mirrors and other reflective surfaces to check for that perceived flaw. And where it gets tricky in terms of eating disorders is it's, it's hard diagnostically because, you know, it it says in the DSM, like if it's related to weight, it's typically not body dysmorphia, but a lot of people with eating disorders do have body dysmorphia where they perceive their appearance wildly different than other people do. And they are fixated on perceived defects being weight. And somebody could have both BDD and an eating disorder, but for a lot of people with body dysmorphia, it's about something like the nose or it's about hair, like men who fear having a receding hairline, or it could be about like my shoulder is not as proportionate as the other shoulder. So a lot of the time it's not about weight and people typically don't understand that. They think body dysmorphia is you see yourself as larger than you are when it's so much more than that. Interesting. And so then how does that show up as an OCD? Like how would you, would it just be the, the thoughts and the patterns around the thought around your body? Yes. Really great question. It like, there are obsessions, like I said earlier, obsessions being repetitive, unwanted, distressing, intrusive thoughts. And those thoughts for someone with body dysmorphic disorder are related to the perceived defect. So it could just be you know, all day long, their brain is reminding them of how does your nose look? Is your nose too big? Are people staring at your nose? What if people are looking at your nose? Did someone just take a picture of your nose? So it's kind of this like relentless obsession related to the perceived defect. And then the compulsions to try to hide or camouflage that perceived defect. It's not exactly OCD, but it is a spectrum disorder because it is very similar to OCD. Gotcha. How is that different for everyone who's listening? Who's now like, oh my gosh, I have, <laughs> I, I have this now because I'm obsessed with a trait for myself. How do you just like, uh, di- differentiate this from an insecurity that you might have? Oh my gosh. I'm so glad you asked that because I think body dysmorphia is often used in the wrong way. Oh, I have dysmorphia. I don't, you know, I don't, like the way I look in the mirror this morning, body dysmorphia is not just insecurity and it's not just a body image disturbance that a lot of people have like OCD. Someone with BDD is having these obsessions that are distressing and time consuming and impairing their functioning. It's like, I can't stop thinking about this thing, even though I want to, and I am extremely distressed by it. And then the compulsive behavior is time consuming and impairing one's functioning. Like obsessions and compulsions have to take up at least an hour of a person's day for someone to be diagnosed. So it's not merely like I have dissatisfaction with the way that I look, but I'm not compulsively trying to camouflage it. I'm not asking people for reassurance about it all day long. That is different than this is at the forefront of my brain constantly. And I feel the consistent urge to do something about that. Interesting. Oh man, I can totally see how I'm thinking of every client I've ever, <laughs> I've ever worked with, right. That has anorexia and has a lot of this going on at the same time with, you know, body checking. And then it comes into the food. Huge component. compulsion. 
right? And then the compulsion obsessions around food too. So I would love for you to talk about how it can, like, oh my gosh, is it a chicken or an egg? You know, like which one is it first? And then how do you then get to the root of it? Because so much of the work that you do as a practitioner is wanting to get to the heart of what is really plaguing your, your, your client and your patient. And so how do you get to the heart of it? Is the, the food thing almost a representation of the OCD or is it the OCD that's, you know, perpetuating the, I don't know how to describe it, but I think, you know, where I'm going with this. I know where you're going with it. So (laughs) there is comorbidity. Like I said, um, I don't know the statistics, so I'm not going to throw it out, but it's something like some percentage of people with eating disorders also meet criteria for OCD. So they are very similar, but not every person with an eating disorder does have OCD. Um, in terms of like what causes what, or not even necessarily causes, but how they play into each other, how they play into each other. Right. I think that, I mean, it really is dependent on the person. I will say like, for me, I had eating disorders before the onset of my severe OCD. And the way that I think about it is I think that the nutritional deficiency from anorexia impaired my cognitive functioning as it often does. And I think that that played into the onset of OCD. I really, really do. I don't think it was the cause people with OCD typically are genetically predisposed. So an environmental factor can contribute, but someone with OCD is typically biologically predisposed and it's probably going to happen at some point, although we don't know the exact cause of it. And what I want to point out is like getting to the root cause isn't really necessary for someone with OCD. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes therapists get stuck in that, trying to figure out like what in your childhood happened that you could have these, you know, sexual obsessions about kids. And often there isn't anything. It's just, it's literally a brain disorder and the brain is stuck on the scariest thought that somebody could think about. Now with eating disorders, we might look at more of a root cause. We might look at is, you know, food and body, a mechanism of control for other areas in your life that you're not feeling very in control of. So there's typically that deeper kind of psychodynamic work with eating disorders that we really steer clear of in OCD treatment. Interesting. Because I've, I've seen on your Instagram too, that OCD is also in some of the behaviors associated with OCD or the I guess, I, I don't know if I'm using the words correctly, so feel free to correct me, but the compulsions could be yes. also an indication of how to manage anxiety. So could you explain that a little bit and clarify? Definitely. I'll kind of walk you through like what the obsessive compulsive cycle looks like for someone with OCD. So it's the obsession, like the repetitive, unwanted thought, image, or urge that causes a lot of anxiety for the person experiencing it. So the way that I describe it to people is you are getting a, it's a false alarm, but it feels like a real alarm in your body. Like when someone with OCD is experiencing an obsession, it's like you're standing in a burning building, but the building is not actually on fire. Your body is telling you that it is. So your body is kind of, or your brain is malfunctioning and it's, alerting you of danger that is not actually present. So think about like, you have a thought, like I want to eat breakfast doesn't cause any anxiety, but for the person with OCD, a thought of what if you're a murderer sends a rush of terror through the body. It's so anxiety provoking. It feels like they're in danger. It feels like they need to urgently figure this out right now. 
And that's where compulsions can come into play to try to alleviate that anxiety and discomfort. I'm going to hide the knives to make absolute, you know, sure that I'm not going to stab my partner. And I really hope that hiding the knives gets rid of some of that anxiety. The problem is that with that whole cycle, when you perform a compulsion, you might temporarily feel the relief of anxiety, but ultimately you're exacerbating anxiety and discomfort in the long run because you're reinforcing the obsession. You're telling your brain this false alarm that I'm going to stab someone is actually a real alarm. You're hiding the knives. You're asking people for reassurance. So it doesn't actually satiate in the long run, those compulsions. And same with someone who has an eating disorder, right? Like if I just exercise today, then, you know, I'm going to alleviate some of the anxiety related to fear of weight gain. Doesn't actually alleviate it in the long run. No. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that's a really great point. So then could you talk a little bit about, I, one of the things that Dana and I talked about in preparation for it, for this episode today was talking about thinking about orthorexia and thinking about how how that could really like, like a, a major, like for lack of a better word, shit storm um, with with someone with OCD And I would love for you to talk about that. Is that something that you see in practice often? And I'd love for you to kind of share a little bit about that. It's interesting. Some like OCD and eating disorder specialists will describe it as like kind of like the perfect combination of OCD and eating disorders. And a lot of them see it even a little bit more as OCD. And the way that we conceptualize it is like an obsession with clean eating. Yep. Right. It's, and it, it really is obsessive. It's these kind of unrelenting, repetitive thoughts about, is this food clean? Is this healthy enough? Is this organic? And is contaminated. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. Is this contaminated by sugar or carbs or whatever? I need the cleanest food available to me, all organic, all, you know, bread from the ground, whatever it may be. And leads to a lot of compulsions, a lot of checking of labels at the store, a lot of asking the, you know, waiter, let's say like, has this been cooked in X, Y, and Z, or is this totally clean? And it does very similarly mirror obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. And so I could see how someone, you know, scrolling through Instagram and trying to work on their, um, you know, maybe they want to work on clean eating and kind of step away from it. And then they read things like your food's not dirty could feel really like, well, that's not really helpful, <laughs> helpful to totally. me because, because my issue is much deeper than that. It's like, I don't, you know, so I, I am curious too. So from that perspective, I would imagine that it would be exposure treatment maybe, but how do you then work with people who have a real fear of, of dirty eating or they're obsessed with clean eating and how do you work on that? That's a really great question. So with OCD and even eating disorders, I will start with OCD. The, the gold standard treatment as of now is exposure and response prevention. So exposing a person gradually to feared stimuli while cutting out compulsions that can be utilized with orthorexia. What can make it a little bit more difficult is that OCD is absolutely ego dystonic sometimes with orthorexia or eating disorders, it feels a little bit more egocentric. Like the person is saying like, no, I really, 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 um, like want to be thin, or I really, really, really like, you know, enjoy organic, all natural foods. And that can be a little bit more 
difficult to work on if it's, if it's not seen as, you know, in opposition to their values. But if someone has insight and recognizes like, this is ridiculous, I can't eat anything at this point, you know, like I can't even eat the lettuce from whole foods because it's not clean enough, then exposure and response prevention, it would look like gradually introducing those quote unquote dirty foods that we know aren't dirty, but that doesn't satiate for the person and then resisting rituals, which could be mental rituals, like ruminating about what they just ate. It could be resisting physical rituals, like getting to the gym right after eating something that's not clean enough. And that's kind of what ERP looks like. And purging. I could see purging behaviors coming. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. As as a result of that too. Yeah, definitely. Wanting to get the food out of them, feeling like it was dirty. I actually am thinking about some, some people that I've, that I've worked with in the past who felt that way, who felt like a pressure on their throat, like that they felt like this was dirty. Like I needed to get this. Oh yeah. And that's the thing about like OCD as well, is that it feels so real to the person experiencing it and orthorexia, same thing. Like it can literally quote unquote, feel like there is dirtiness somewhere in your body and it, after eating a certain food and it does feel pretty uncomfortable going through exposure and response prevention and having to tolerate that feeling. But ultimately it's how one can get so much better from that habituating or learning, you know, over time, like this, nothing bad happened. This wasn't actually as catastrophic as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. The world kept turning. I woke up the next day. This lettuce (laughs) was not, this lettuce didn't kill me. Right. I'm all right. I could also see too, you mentioned also, I'm thinking about some of our listeners and what common people are feeling a lot of times, and that's a lot of GI issues. And I'm curious of how that might play out, if at all, with individuals with OCD or undiagnosed OCD um, coming up in like body type of, you know, physical um, discomfort. That's a really good question. So the, like, I always say that OCD can have physical impacts. Like it can definitely impact a person physically. I think that's probably more so related to eating disorders and like orthorexia, unless you're seeing someone with OCD who is, you know, restricting and they're doing things with food that are that are, you know, hurting their body internally, but also just with OCD, like the heightened anxiety, the heightened like adrenaline that they're experiencing can lead to physical complications and physical manifestations of how hard it is to live with the symptoms. Interesting. And I could see too, because if your body's in such an alarm state, mm-hmm. <laughs> then, I mean, I know from a physiological standpoint, we don't have the blood in our GI system in order to digest and assimilate the food that we're eating anyways. So that's going to in turn make us have more GI discomfort and things like that coming up with it. So I, I, I bet there's research and I'd, I'd be curious to find out if this is more of like a Christina's going to nerd out on this later. I love that. Like- I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I might go start like, you know, going on PubMed and looking up a bunch of stuff, but I'm curious about the connection back to, I'm sure that the, the misdiagnosis for people with like OCD and IBS and the connection back and forth between the two things is probably really high. Um, I would imagine. 
Definitely. And I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm not like super aware of stuff like that, but I think it's so important. Like I'll tell clients, like definitely get a, you know, a medical checkup for sure. And then especially of course, for somebody with an eating disorder, it's imperative to have that medical team as part of the treatment where you typically wouldn't see that with OCD unless it was related to an obsession, right? Like unless past clients that I've had who have restricted so much because they're afraid that, you know, the food is contaminated that they actually need to be medically restored in terms of weight. Yeah. Okay. Really interesting. So one eating disorder we haven't talked about or touched on at all is binge eating. And I'm curious of how that might play out in this OCD cycle that you've been laying out for us. Definitely. So binge eating in terms of like the diagnostic criteria, as it says, like, you know, recurrent episodes of binge eating without compensatory behaviors. So binging without the purging essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and with binge eating, it's, it's not that there isn't, I mean, there definitely is some kind of cycle at play and it's really dependent on the client. Like for instance, we know that restriction leads to binging. So a lot of the times clients will say things like, I just can't be trusted around food. I ate, you know, two whole pizzas at night. Why did I do this? But then I find out that they hadn't really eaten anything throughout the entirety of the day. So if we're looking at that kind of cycle, definitely restriction leading to binging, but sometimes people also have the urge to binge and it's not necessarily something that they want to do, but they feel the urge to, and there has to be a lot of work done to understand the binging, to understand if there's an emotional component, to understand if, you know, we can have other coping mechanisms besides binging. So it's similar for sure, but I would say, I mean, don't quote me on this, but I guess quote me on this anorexia (laughs) and bulimia are probably more typical of the obsessive compulsive cycle than binge eating is. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. It's important. I think for people to kind of hear and and get a good feel of how these different things play out. So if they're, if someone listening is identifying with some of the stuff that's going on earlier, I want them to know, like, this is an avenue that you could go down to, to look into and to find a practitioner like you that can help them kind of like delineate the difference between the two things and, and how it's playing out in their life and get the support that they need. Uh, because I don't want people feeling locked inside themselves. And so like eating disorders, and it sounds like OCD feels like a, a really, it's, I know, I know from eating disorder cases and it's just, you feel so locked inside yourself right? and not being able to get the support and not understanding why. And if someone, if someone's listening, who has gone through a lot of traditional eating disorder treatment, and isn't getting a, further along as long as they'd like to maybe this is an area that they should be looking into. Definitely. And then one other thing I wanted to add to is that, cause I feel like we hear a lot about anorexia and bulimia, like binge eating is just as harmful and it is just as valid of an eating disorder. I feel like sometimes Absolutely. people don't see that and they feel like, you know, if I'm not extremely underweight or like it doesn't count, but binge eating can really impair a person's functioning too. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I'm glad that you brought that up because I don't want anyone to think that just because it doesn't fit into the context of OCD as readily as anorexia and bulimia doesn't mean that it's not important and that you should get support for it 100%. Yeah. Um, so I, man, I'm, is there, 
I'm thinking about, um, I keep going back to orthorexia and wanting to learn more about your thoughts around that too, because I feel like from an orthorexia standpoint and having this obsession with clean eating, I would imagine that it'd be really difficult as far as the exposure treatment is concerned, because there is this so much, there's so much readily available information. I don't want to say research because I find the research to be incredibly flawed, but it's a lot of times self, like not, um, it reinforces some of the beliefs that they have and in some ways. And so I'm curious too, around how do you then connect the dots between, I think that this is this, this food is contaminated and I've read that pesticides are inside these foods and I can't eat these foods because this is what's going on in there. And I don't want to have those foods inside of me, like that, that chemical inside of me, how do you then kind of support the the connection back to the logical brain, but also the illogical. <laughs> Am right. I making any sense? Like, no, you are. And it, <laughs> it, it's tough. You're right about that. It's really, really tough. And I think that number one is like looking at what feels values based for a client. So I would really have to work with them to separate, like, what is the orthorexia? Like is orthorexia speaking or before you were experiencing this onset of debilitating symptoms, did you also not really care to eat X, Y, and Z? So looking at like, what was your life beforehand? What was your value set? What was your, you know, whatever it might be beforehand. And then what is it now? Because I will get clients with like, you know, preferences for, let's say, I don't know, vegetarianism and they won't eat certain kinds of things. And I will absolutely, of course, respect that where it it doesn't feel as much like related to OCD or eating disorders as just a value. They don't want to eat animals. So definitely thinking about what is values based and what is not the orthorexia speaking. Yeah, but that can also get kind of fuzzy too, it's right? It's hard. It can get so like twisted. And like you said, especially with all of this quote unquote research that sugar is, you know, addictive and it's like, so it's so dangerous and it's, yeah, it is. It's fear mongering for a lot of people and it takes someone to really recognize. And I would say also working with a nutritionist, I think that that's really, really important to see that like all foods do fit in a healthy diet. And at the end of the day, a lot of things have something in it, right? Like we're not all Mm -hmm. eating grass from the ground. Yeah. But I would say that's probably where your role comes into play as well as helping someone recognize that all foods can fit. Yeah. And I, I guess one of the things that this has me thinking about even more is the, the idea of values too, and whether or not how and where your values are getting influenced by. And what Dan and I talk a lot about different types of beliefs that we might have that might be limiting for our values, right? Like you might really value the concept of health, but is the way we're defining health limiting and narrow? (laughs) Yeah. And is it like impacting your functioning? Right. And is it actually really about health? I feel like And this is like, we could do a whole nother episode on this, but this is where it's so important for a therapist to really like, this is the work in treatment is 
yes, you're saying you're valuing your health, but you're also doing all of these things. It's not your fault. You have a, a, a disorder, but that are really unhealthy for you. So is it actually about health? And we can value health, of course, without doing all of these compulsive behaviors, without restricting all of these foods, without being at the gym four hours a day, you know? So looking at what actually is health to the person, yeah, you know, and we can value it without trying to achieve it through disordered mechanisms is what Mm -hmm. I would say to a client. Yeah. And how do you then like for the person listening, um, how do they then kind of take it and say, okay, how do I redefine health for myself if I'm looking at it? And this is an exercise I do with a lot of my clients. So listeners feel free to do it, define what healthy is to you, and then take a cold hard look at it and see what is influencing that is because like you'll go to the doctor and they'll say things like lose weight for your health. And it's like, but that doesn't tell a person anything. Weight is not a behavior. You know, and like, we can't tell someone's health by looking at them. So sometimes when clients say like, well, I want to lose weight to be healthy. I'm like, but is that actually what it's about? Like, do you actually know what health promoting behaviors you'd like to change? Like, what does healthy mean to you? Mm -hmm. And I think what I like to think about for a person is like, how do you feel internally? You know, like looking at health in that way, instead of health as like, I look a certain way, because that's not necessarily healthy. That's not health. No, especially if we're leading to malnutrition and yes. and compulsive behaviors in order to get there, right? Like to me, like that, not, that is like the complete antithesis. It's the opposite of, of health. It's of not health. healthy. And what gets yeah. hung about that too is that for some people, that kind of behavior isn't like disordered. You know, like there are some people who genuinely like to be at the gym six days a week. They're athletes. They love it. They'll be there for two hours they, you know, don't eat X, Y, and Z, but like, it's not disordered for them. They're not thinking about it during the day. It doesn't bother them. It doesn't impair them. And that's also what's difficult. Cause I think that for people with eating disorders and OCD, like we have to be a lot more careful about those kinds of behaviors that can become disordered, but it's not disordered for every single person in the population. And I think that's what makes it difficult too, is like, there's not this black and white one size fits all approach. Yeah. I remember a client of mine, uh, turned to me and said, why does my, why is my husband able to do these things and it not be a big deal? He doesn't like, even think about it. He probably doesn't even care. He doesn't he's, care. He's just like, I love lifting. I love lifting I love my <laughs> boxing classes. But like for someone with, like when I was struggling with anorexia, it was like, oh my God, if I didn't get up and scrape the ice off of my car to get to the gym at five 30, like it was going to be the end of my world. Or I'm sitting in my room crying because I can't do it. And it's like the day is shot. And, and that's the literal, I mean, disorder versus non-disorder. And it's so important that, you know, we define what disorder is. Like you said earlier with like an insecurity being very different than someone with body dysmorphia, who is quite literally in their room, taking 4,000 photos of their hairline before going out. Just two very different things incredibly different. I also think too, like the intrusiveness into your life plays such a big role, you know, it's keeping you from doing stuff. It's keeping you from going shopping with your friends, or it's keeping you from going out to brunch with your friends. It's keeping you from being able to 
to be nourished, you know, like we're malnourished as a result of it. Um, and so I think about that as well. And I think sometimes some like those things feel like badges of honor in the eating disorder community. Like, oh, I said no to going to brunch with my friends because I'm going to be good this week. Like, no, no. going out with your friends is, is important for your mental health. Sometimes saying no is equally as important for right. your mental health, right? If you just want to have a cozy day at home and snuggle under your blanket like but at the same time I think the I guess in some ways to the motivation behind the why you're doing certain types of behaviors can kind of lead someone down the road of of why am I doing this and what's motivating me if you start to think about that a little bit more too yeah like intention I talk about that a lot with clients and I would say that too a therapist who is wondering like, how do I differentiate OCD and eating disorders with this client is looking at the intention of the behavior is the intention to, you know, lose a lot of weight because the person has an obsession with, you know, feared weight gain, or is the intention, I don't want God to hate me, right? Like that, that can be a pretty clear indicator of the diagnosis and, that can also just the question of intention can help a person differentiate between values and disorder, right? Is my intention going to the gym because I love it and it feels really good internally and my mental health feels good or is my intention to lose weight and punish myself? Very different. <laughs> totally different. Dana and I talk about this a lot because we define instead of going down the road of intuitive eating, which we do love, but we also really define for ourselves intentional eating mm-hmm. and being able to talk to your clients about, okay, how do I incorporate health performing, health promoting behaviors without it being a slippery slope into, you know, column A, column B, column C, like all these different avenues that it can go down to really dangerously. How can I especially for people who are thinking, well, I still want to eat in a nourished, balanced kind of way. I use balance because there's, I don't really have another word for it at the time, but I'll explain like between marrying what your body physically needs in order to be nourished and get the the nutrients that it needs every day. And also allowing for flexibility and allowing for freedom to enjoy all kinds of different foods with not only being obsessed and thinking only about, is this going to be nutriently dense? Every single meal has to be this perfect little plate. Um, And so then I tell clients of mine, because when you're start starting to implement that, it's like, okay, well, how do I then differentiate for myself? Am I eating this way because it makes it, I think that it's morally better or something that I should be doing in order to lose weight? Or am I doing this because I want to feel nourished and I need to have all, I need to have nourishment in my body. I need to have different variety of different types of nutrients coming from various different sources. How do I then create that environment for myself and being able to call myself out while I'm going through this transition. And that comes down to intention. What is your intention of ordering the salad versus what is your intention of not ordering the salad or where is it coming from? Right. Like, do you want the salad? Cause it genuinely sounds awesome. And like a salad is sounds great for this meal. Or are you ordering the salad out of fear that you are going to gain weight? Super, super, super important to look at. And I really like that in terms of intuitive eating, the kind of, you know, health promoting stuff is at the very end of one's intuitive eating journey. It can be just too hard for someone 
who has been struggling with an eating disorder to try to incorporate nutrition like that at the beginning of an intuitive eating journey when they haven't been listening to their bodies and they've been trying to eat, you know, nutritionally, which is so disordered that (laughs) entire time. I like that it's at the end so that it can be like the final kind of add in after you've really learned to listen to your body. Yeah. I tell clients I find that that's advanced. Yes. Right? Like that's the ne- that's like advanced therapy. It's like advanced eating disorder treatment is when you start to add those things in because you really have to do all the work initially to decipher what's going on so that you can hear more clearly the intention, right? When you're going in, you know, fresh out of an IOP or fresh out of a diagnosis or fresh out of a realization that you might be struggling with this and then saying, being able to discern the difference between your intention can be really difficult because your eating disorder voice and the compulsions for that are too strong. They're, they're too, they're too strong. They're too present. They're too like, you know, and then you can quickly start negotiating with yourself. Yeah. And get back to the place of an eating disorder. You know, it's, it's real, it's a fine line for a lot of people. And some people don't even necessarily, not everyone, but some people don't like the gentle nutrition component of intuitive eating. Cause it, it feels like it just sends them right back into yep. an eating disorder. So it is a super fine line and it really does have to be done with a professional. So it doesn't become now every meal is vegetables. Again, it yep. doesn't become this like obsession with, I have to have green food every single meal that I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And being okay. And I, I even say to, to clients, like, I think sometimes when you're starting to, at least I know for myself and so I'll I'll just, you know, self-disclose, but with my own stuff, I have to be intentionally flexible. I have to remind myself, no, I have to eat just the donut and that's okay. Right. Yeah. And that's okay. And I'm not, (laughs) exactly. It's like, no, no, no. I have to like remind myself, no, I have to be intentionally flexible here. The same way that people feel like, I think people get caught up in, I need to be intentional about integrating health promoting behaviors, but sometimes your health promoting behavior is flexibility. (laughs) Yeah. Every meal can't be Perfect. And I think that's also a myth about intuitive eating is like, we listen to ourselves and we eat just exactly what we want. (laughs) Sometimes it's not available. Like the literal only thing I have, because I haven't been grocery shopping all week was cereal this morning. I didn't feel like it, but I knew I had to eat and I ate the cereal, right? Like sometimes we just have to nourish our bodies and we eat what's available. We have to be flexible in that way. Mm -hmm. Even if it doesn't sound like the, I would have rather had eggs and pancakes. I just don't have that, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's hard for people when with intuitive eating too, is that it can be really challenging kind of being able to decide that I could imagine too, for someone with OCD, the whole concept of intuitive eating could feel really foreign and uncomfortable. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's really hard for people with OCD and anxiety disorders to trust their gut, right? Because it's like their gut is lying to them. It's telling them that things are dangerous. And it's not that people with OCD are irrational themselves. Like they can typically see this doesn't really like they can, they have insight that it's not logical, but logic doesn't necessarily satiate. It's not the thing that is going to cure them of OCD. And I would say with eating disorders also, 
it is really hard for a person, let's say someone who has been restricting for a long time to listen to their internal hunger cues. That's going to take a they lot don't have of work. <laughs> yeah, they're gone, right? It's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take working with someone like you, a nutritionist, and probably eating even if you're not necessarily feeling that hunger cue because you haven't eaten in three to four hours and your body is hungry. So that can be difficult too. It's hard for someone who has an intense fear of food to be like, intuitively, what do I want to eat today? Yeah. Their brain is like nothing, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) The brain is like, you're not, you're not even hungry. So yeah, you're not eating anything. (laughs) Keep rolling. And then they have this eating disorder saying, Hey, see, it's good. You know, you're nothing's, nothing's, nothing's wrong here. You know, like you're totally fine. There's nothing wrong here. And then being able to discern that can be just incredibly challenging. Well, Allegra, I have loved this conversation so so much. And I feel like I could talk to you for another hour about all of these things, but we're only going to talk for an hour today, but I would (laughs) love to, I'm not going to take up all of your time, but I'd love for you to share more about you, what people, where people can find you, anything that you have to share resources, anything like that, that you want us to share in the, in the podcast. Definitely. So Instagram is the main platform that I'm on at obsessively ever after. I also have a website. It's just www.allegracastins.com. And you can find me there. I do workshop series once a month. You can find the articles that I've written. And if anybody listening to this needs a referral for an OCD specialist or an eating disorder specialist, they can send me an email and I can help provide referrals in their states. Oh, amazing. That's so kind of you to offer. So yeah, I think there's a lot of people and I'll be emailing you um, for some people, for some clients of mine. So thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. And we'll see you on Instagram. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode, and we hope that you enjoyed it. If you have any questions, any feedback, any comments on the episode, feel free to send us an email at hello at wholeheartedeating.com, which is also where you can find Christina and Dana more about our courses and our individual one-on-one client services. We also recently launched a Patreon for our show, which is a member-exclusive platform where you can pledge a small amount to help us support the podcast. This helps us grow and cover the baseline costs of running the podcast, which a lot of people don't know about but there is a good bit that goes into that and you in turn in exchange for your support gain access to ad-free episodes of the show monthly bonus episodes with christina and dana after the episode deep dives with our guests community episode discussions listener questions and bonus content shared only with our patrons and so much more to come check out patreon.com slash wholehearted eating and of course the link will be in the show notes find us on instagram at wholehearted eating pod find dana at dana monsies underscore cns and find christina at christina hoyt nutrition and that's it for today friends we'll see you next week